This is the Boston Book Festival Virtual Edition. I'm Debbie Porter, founder of the BBF, and you are listening to one in our series of four audio memoir sessions. I hope you enjoy hearing from these wonderful authors, and I hope to see you next year in person. This is Paris Alston. I am a producer at WBUR's Radio Boston, and I am delighted to be hosting this memoir session on race and identity. The three memoirists I will be speaking with represent a wide variety of lived experience and perspectives on race and culture. They are Sajel Shaw, author of This Is One Way to Dance, E. Dolores Johnson, author of Say I'm Dead, and Isaac Bailey, author of Why Didn't We Riot and My Brother Moochie. All four books are available from bookshop.org, where your purchases help support a network of independent booksellers. So, Sejal, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Paris. Your collection of essays really comes at a pivotal time in American culture and what will at some point be American history. Obviously, there's a lot of reckoning with race right now. That conversation is mostly centered on black and white. In your your essay titled Skin, you talk about what it means to be brown, especially in this country that is really so defined by black and white. You know, you have this line that says that you are a brown girl here, never just a girl. Where does brown fit in in a time like this? You know, one of the challenging and and great things I think about putting this book together, putting This Is One Way to Dance together, is that there are essays written over 20 years. So Skin was actually written in 1999 when I was living in Amherst, Massachusetts. So these essays are really placed in time and place. And right now we're in the entirely other moment. And I think we're still grappling with that as a country and as a culture. Who is represented? Who is doing the representation? What movies are out there? Who's running for office, right? And I think the lack of what's been taught about 20th century American history and the ways in which a lot of narratives have been left out of that history, um, I think we're seeing that come to the forefront right now. And with that, do you think there's kind of a better understanding of what really multiculturalism is today than than in 1999 or, or when you were younger? You know, I don't know. There are times when sometimes my book is described as, you know, something about an Indian hyphen American narrative. And I think, why isn't it just an American narrative? Multiculturalism, I think for me, even still feels like it's not in a bad way, but that it's from the 90s. I really believe in in self-definition. And it's been interesting how Kamala Harris is covered as vice presidential candidate, um, how much emphasis is on her identity and where her parents came from, as opposed to what is she standing for? What are the policies that she believes in? Where is she coming from in terms of those ideologies? Mm. Is she progressive? Is she not? What does that mean? Yeah. And I'm glad you bring up Kamala Harris because I was reading the early parts of your book as she was giving her acceptance speech for the nomination of vice president. Mm -hmm. It was a really good thing to ponder because I was reading your book, and I'm Black. And of course, we know that being or having Black and Indian American heritage both relate to Kamala Harris. And so as she was talking about what it means to have those identities and to be running for vice president, what it means to be representing so many different people in this nation, it was a really important moment for me to acknowledge that as well. You mentioned how a lot of her identity has been torn apart. There's been questions about, oh, well, is she really Black? You know, there's been questions about, oh, well, you know, she's South Asian and like, and what all of that means, as you're saying. And so how are you thinking about that? I mean, I think for me, the heart and the power of the personal essay, or in the essay form, is really putting forth a specific experience. And there's a way in which, by its very specificity, it can become something that's also universal and other people identify with. Mm-hmm. And I just think that, for example, to grow up in Oakland and Berkeley is very different than to grow up in Western New York, where I did. And, you know, I was very excited about Obama for lots of reasons, but also my mother is from Kenya and grew up there. There's something in the discourse I hear, which is often about wanting to pin someone to a particular identity. And I think identity is shifting. 
you know, it depends on who a person is, you know, their experiences growing up. I happen to marry a South Asian American man who's much darker than Kamala Harris, and he's South Indian. We grew up two miles from each other and had just very different experiences of what it meant to be what it meant to be Indian. He grew up going to India regularly and having a connection with that country. And I didn't. All of my immediate extended family was in the U.S., in California and in New Jersey. And I grew up as part of an Indian American and Gujarati ethnic community and religious community, the Hindu community in Rochester. You know, we have different languages, different food. Um, This idea that there's just one way to be Indian or one way to be Black is that in itself is problematic. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about representation or, or publishing, if you have, you know, just Jhumpa Lahiri stories were the only ones out there for so long, and she's a beautiful writer, but it's the danger of a single story. And that's really publishing, white publishing saying, okay, there's here's Indian and, that, and we're checking that off and here's black and we're checking that off. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing so many more voices. Right. That's exciting. That's when you get to be a girl and not just a brown girl, right? Right, exactly. There is all this nuance. There's tension and these differences. And of course, your story is just one. I would like to invite you to read a little bit from your book. Yes, thank you so much. This is from the introduction. There was an intermission. It was that long. I saw Gandhi in the movie theater and still remember my indignation that the director chose a white actor to play the most famous Indian. Later, I learned that Ben Kingsley is half Gujarati. His birth name is Krishna. I was 10 growing up outside Rochester, New York, a part of Western New York that's both racially and socioeconomically hypersegregated. I have always thought about race and representation. I wanted to see something of the life I knew in a book on a screen. I felt that way in the long ago movie theater as a child. I felt that way when I was in my 20s and in graduate school. Sometimes I still feel that way. I began writing to make a point of view, people, and entire cultural references I never saw reflected in what I read or watched. How do you make yourself visible and legible to yourself in a world that often does not see you or only sees race? How do you take up space? These essays meditate on objects and place. How do you move in a body often viewed as other? How do you claim the I, the person dancing, the person leading the dance? And I also want to talk a bit about where generational experience Mm -hmm. comes Mm -hmm. in. You kind of talk about the place of your family in the place of families like yours after 1965, but then also to other generations of people who have been deemed diverse. There have been all these different iterations of dealing with these things. And I guess I wonder, I mean, in conversations maybe that you've had with your parents or or other older relatives about how they navigated it and how you had to do it, what comes up there? That's a great question, too. I mean, I think it is generational. I was talking with Sopan Deb, who published a memoir this year, Mistranslations, Meeting My Immigrant Parents. And he's Bengali-American, and he went to Boston University, I think, and, and grew up in Massachusetts and New Jersey. But about how how specific our stories are. Mm-hmm. I was interviewed for on an NPR show in Rochester and a caller asked about the question, where are you from? And does that have to be, you know, taken as a microaggression? What if, mm-hmm. what if someone just wants to know, you know, and they're interested in other cultures? Right. I said, you know, what is wrong with accepting the answer that the person you ask gives? Mm-hmm. What does it mean when someone expects that they're going to get a racial breakdown or ethnic history in that question? Right, right. Certainly when I when I moved to Massachusetts and I was asked where I was from, I would say Rochester. And I one of the things that was fun for me about living in a different part of the country was seeing how it was different, how New England felt different to me. My parents talked to me after this radio show and they said they thought that was a fair question. And I said, well, you're actually from those countries. Right. I didn't go to India until I was 19. So for me, it was an irritating thing to be asked about it and then be, you know, get to hear someone's story about their favorite Indian food or how they have an Indian friend. And um, it felt like it flattened the experience. The other thing is there have been Asian Americans in the U.S. for a long time. There were earlier Bengali and Bangladeshi immigrants who were in Harlem and Punjabi Sikhs who were in California in the 20s. Mm -hmm. And I think we're not able to get citizenship 
as the laws were changing. So we really did occupy a racially ambiguous place. Yeah. You know, I was looking at the classifications, the Library of Congress cataloging for my book, and it says racially mixed people. I don't know how they came up with these, but I remember asking, why would I not be African-American or Kenyan as a kid if my mother had grown up there? Like, that was her country. You know, these kind of mismatches between, you know, what do we say when we say a country? There's been immigration, um, the slave trade, uh, colonialism, (laughs) you know, people are adopted. So what does it mean to say, where are you from? And subsequently, like, where are you really from? (laughs) Yeah. And and my mother's also very light skinned. And I think she told me once that people often assumed that she was like a Middle Eastern or uh, Lebanese or I mean, whatever it was. And but she would say, no, no, I'm Indian. And again, she has a lived experience in India that I don't have. Right. I just feel like people should, should be allowed the respect to answer the question in the way that makes sense to them. I do want to talk a bit about your essay, The World is Full of Paper, in which you recall your work with poet professor and then UMass Amherst MFA program director, Aga Shahid Ali, mm-hmm. in the late 90s. And you talk about Shahid chopping up your poetry and you really express all this angst about <laughs> having little room for your voice um, in his workshop. And you noted that this wasn't the way that you wanted your students to find their voices. And I'd love for you to help us unpack that and understand the importance of kind of having free range to find your voice. I mean, even though, yes, like writing, I guess at a certain point does have to be refined and and fine tuned and all of that. But especially when we're talking about identity, why is one's writing so precious? And what is the line between, you know, mentoring and guiding, but also just letting people find what they need to find to express themselves? I get asked about that essay a lot. And it's an essay that came out of remarks that I wrote for Shahid's memorial service in Mm. 2002. And then I moved to Brooklyn and I I lost those notes. And by the time I found them again and expanded them into this essay, it was 2013. So it was 12 years after his passing. I was a young graduate student and I was very excited to study with the South Asian writer. And he was wonderful. Also just completely irreverent. And Mm -hmm. um, I think it was also a time Kathy Park Hong wrote about this in her essay collection, Minor Feelings, that MFA programs at that time in the, you know, early aughts, and I think the late 90s, it wasn't a place where you could write about race, I found in those Mm -hmm. poetry workshops. And I was really interested in writing about race and ethnicity. I was actually a student in the fiction side of the program. One of the things that's unfortunate is that I I kind of stopped identifying with myself, or I, I had a very strong identity as a poet before then. And mm-hmm. um, I really moved into to prose. As I've gotten older, I'm closer in age to the age Shahid was when he passed away now. And so mm-hmm. I've changed as a person and a, a teacher. You know, a teacher can't be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. So I loved studying with him. And then I also, I was thinking about when I moved back to Rochester and I was teaching at Writers and Books, which is like our Grub Street. I had students who were my age and older and people who had kids and jobs. And I thought, you know, I wouldn't do that because I don't want to stop. To me, what's most important is to to support and nurture their work. Mm-hmm. I think you get different things from different teachers. You don't know how sensitive a person is going to be. Right. I felt like in some ways it cut me off from a certain part of my voice. But on the other hand, I think that within the essay form, you know, some of my essays are lyric essays. So they're working with the compression of poetry. So lastly, Sejal, um, you know, since we are talking about about learning, right, about learning, writing and, and coming up as a writer, what, what would be your sounding off advice to any young writers out there, especially those who are, who are writing about identity? To trust yourself, to read widely, and I think creative writing is being taught differently. But our, you know, our teachers are our teachers, but they're also books and conversations. I think the things that people criticized in workshop when I was in graduate school, those ticks were also my strengths. And to write into that, that really what you have is your voice. It's like a fingerprint. And I think that that's what we have to 
that's what we have to give to the world. It's your particular way of looking at the world, which, you know, in the U.S. maybe gets flattened into race, but that's not all that it's about. Mm -hmm. I think we're a country that hasn't figured out kinship and race and community, and we're grappling with that in very real ways right now. But we need voices that are going to extend the conversation. Absolutely. That is golden advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sejal Shah, author of This Is One Way to Dance, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on, Ferris. I'm, I'm thrilled. E. Dolores Johnson, author of Say I'm Dead, a family memoir of race, secrets, and love. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me, Paris. Dolores, I'm reading your book at a time when it's very relevant to what's happening in our world between the protest and our reckoning with race and really thinking deeply about race and identity. And what really struck me about your memoir is that it is about you learning more and living in your identity as a person of mixed race. And there's been a lot of conversations at this time about how mixed race has had this complicated history and then sometimes has been thought of as bridging a racial gap and sort of being the answer to some of our, our racial problems in this country. But of course, it comes with issues and complications of, of colorism, of intolerance on both sides of the racial identity being name calling you know, or othering as you've experienced and talked about in the book. So I'm wondering how you are thinking about that in this time that we find ourselves in. A really good question. The acceleration of births of mixed race is a phenomenon that the census has been writing about and also the Pew Research Center. It used to be when I was a child, there were very, very few mixed race people. And a Pew study done in 1958, when I was 10 years old, showed that 96% of Americans were against race mixing, as opposed to the latest study from 2007, which shows that 77% of Americans say it's all right if someone in the family marries somebody from another tribe. So the statistics have shifted dramatically. And the proof is that in the 2010 census, the growth rate for births of mixed-race children outstripped the growth rate for single-race children at three to one. And the trend line, according to the Census Bureau, is that by mid-century, America will have a 20% mixed-race population, which is bigger than the Hispanic population is today. Now, to answer your question about whether mixed-race is um, the way out of the race problem. I say, no, it's not, but it is a significant part of looking at the race problem in America because not only is it accelerating and going to become more commonplace, but the idea that more and more Americans are willing to marry someone from the other tribe, another tribe, is evidence that we are breaking down some walls around the stereotypes and the misgivings about people from another race. Certainly. The colorism that you ask about is also a very important point because as a mixed race person who's light skinned, I have come to realize that I have enjoyed a light skinned privilege that my darker brethren do not always get. And that seems to be because the darker you are in America, the more criminalized the image of black people is. However, as my black father explained to me, racism is alive and well in America, and all you need is one drop of black blood to be subject to all of the racism that there is. So it's very complicated, as you said. Absolutely. And I mean, you have this fascinating kind of placement in your upbringing, right? Where you grew up in your house with, of course, your black father and with your white mother who left her family and no one had heard of her until later, which we'll talk about, of course, but where she really integrated herself into black society, black culture as being your mom, obviously. But of course, there were all these moments where you were reminded of what you're saying your father told you about this one drop rule. And I guess I'm kind of wondering... How did your mom have those discussions with you? Could she relate? Was that something that you all talked about? 
We didn't talk much about being mixed race in my house unless somebody from outside the family brought it to our door somehow. But my mom was just my mom. She wasn't my white mom and she wasn't my black mom. And our bond was extremely close. My mom was a respecter of all persons. And she used to say that racism was foolishness. When she met my dad, she had not known any black people before. And she had heard things about black people that they were shiftless and violent and unreliable and so forth. And when she saw my dad, they worked in the same place. She saw he was very polite, well-spoken, well-groomed, efficient at his work, and he was none of the things that she had heard. And so as we lived our lives as a family, we lived in a ghetto, and my mom was friends with all the neighbors. She was a very likable person, and even one of the neighbors dubbed her an honorary Black woman because she fit in so well. And that was because uh, she didn't hold out her difference or their difference in any of their relationships in the neighborhood. I would say that when we had civil rights actions back in the 50s and 60s, she pretty much rooted for the cause, but she didn't work for the cause. And I think that she felt in those days that it was dangerous for her to do so, but she certainly was a supporter of all that was going on. I mean, I want to dig more into what you're saying about some of the perceptions of Black people and of Blackness and how they existed at that time, but also still resonate today. And and to do that, I want to invite you to read a bit from the book, from the chapter Lonely Only. Thank you. Yes, I will. The uh, scene that I'm going to read is about my family's experience, not only with racism because we were a black family, but because we were a mixed race family. And it takes place when I'm a small child um, and the family is all together. Maybe the worst of the mixed race prejudice was that cloudless afternoon when my Sunday sharp daddy put on his wide brimmed hat and said he had a big surprise for us. We followed him out of the alley from our flat to the street where he opened the passenger door to a green 1940-something secondhand sedan. With an amused bow to Mama, he helped her into our first car, while we three kids shrieked in excitement and jumped in the back. I felt as grand as a TV star as we started off on what Mama called a leisurely ride. Daddy drove beyond downtown and up onto a bridge in a part of town I'd never been to. Smiling over his shoulder, he said we'd see a part of the bridge he built, some work he did on his welding job. Where, Daddy, where? What part did you make, David asked. He slowed way down at the center of the bridge, pointing out seams in the gray metal where he'd welded parts together with a blowtorch. As he continued past it, we kept looking out the back window, imprinting the amazement of daddy's own bridge. A bridge, he said, wouldn't fall, no matter how many cars and trucks were on it. In a low voice, daddy told mama to look left at the police car driving up alongside. Two white officers leaned over, eyeing both my parents menacingly. Daddy stopped at the red light at the foot of the bridge just as their blue lights began flashing. Please, Charles, don't say anything, Mama said, patting his leg. Don't argue with them. Daddy shifted his weight and sat up straight. A policeman built like a wrestler in the arena shows we went to came to Daddy's window. What do we have here, he said. A nigger and a white woman with their three little mongrels in the back. Speeding, too, I see. The officer shoved a ticket through the window at Daddy. Go back where you came from, nigger, and don't you dare be caught driving over here again where you don't belong. I'll be watching for you and this woman. 
Wow. So when I read this, and even when you were just reading it there again, I am reminded of experiences with my own father riding with him. And to this day, my dad is in his 60s. And anytime he sees a police car, it is a physical and emotional shift that happens and is very clear, right? And that is a learned behavior, as you've written here, right? Not only is it a learned behavior for for Black men, but also for the people who are within the orbit and understand the dynamics that exist between police and Black men. And thinking about, I mean, the images that we we continue to see over and over today, how, I guess, how were you feeling for your father in that moment? Devastated. My dad was a powerful figure to us. He was a, a well-built man, strong, and he knew what he wanted and liked, and we did too. And so to see him emasculated was so heartbreaking to us. We couldn't understand it as children. My mom was a level-headed, sensible person in the family who had the good reasoning to caution him about what, what could happen rather than reacting to the police, because who knows what they might have done to him. They were giving him a ticket for no reason. They were demeaning him in front of his family. They were warning him not to be seen there again. Had he gotten out of the car or gotten into a dialogue with them, it could have escalated into anything. And that's what we still see today as we watch these videos of unarmed people being shot, that the police act with impunity and without fear of reprisal. And with the wink, wink, nod, nod between them and some of the other authorities, that when they accost a Black person, anything might happen. And I have a grandson now. He's only one and a half. And already his parents and I spend a great deal of talking about how he is to understand the security of his black body and interactions with police. He can't even reason at this point, but we're already worried. So when your child or your dad, Paris, goes out into the world, we don't know who they're going to meet. So Dolores, I do want to talk about your experience with being curious about and then kind of manifesting this search for your mother's family, your white family who you had no connection to for some time because your mom wanted it that way for a number of reasons. You do describe where your curiosity came from and wanting to understand more about that, but also this hesitation with not knowing how they would respond. But eventually you do get to meet them and they, they welcome you with open arms. And so how do you think your life would have been different had you not connected with them? It was a life-changing experience to meet the white family members and to be embraced by them and to build many decades old relationship. And so that's really an interesting question. I talk in the book about the moment when I decided to accept the open arms they were offering by describing my boogeyman. Mm -hmm. The boogeyman was that voice that was always in my ear from the time I was four years old and got burned on our pot-belly stove and the white cab company wouldn't come to take me to the emergency room. Hmm. That was when I began to form a relationship with this boogeyman who told me, be careful of white people. You're not to trust them. They will do something to you. Even when they're smiling, you have to think very deeply about what's going on because you never know what they're going to do or what they truly think. I lived with that boogeyman all my life. And when I met my white family, I was in my 30s. I had gone to Howard University and in a sea of 10,000 black students, that idea was reinforced as we studied African-American history, as we shared the stories of our own upbringings from all over America and the Black diaspora, that people had a common boogeyman. So I imagine if I had not reconnected with the white folks and if they had, or if they had acted 
ugly towards me, the boogeyman would still be reigning in my life. Hmm. What I learned by meeting them and spending uh, many occasions with them was that my mom was only one of many good white people that the boogeyman did not apply to. That the possibility of love and trust existed all along, but because I had so many racist incidents in my life, I might not have ever discovered that. And do you think there's some lessons in that for us today? Many people have had different experiences with racism, and each one leaves a scar. For me to be talking about something that happened to me when I was four years old makes that point clear. I had the experience of finding out for myself what goodness were in a number of white people. And I think that if you want to open that experience for other people, they have to also get past the racist histories that they have endured and that their family has passed down to them. Be careful of this and that. This is what happened to us. We have got to find ways to successfully cross the race line and build relationships of trust. And one of the reasons why that is extremely difficult in America is because of segregated housing. We live in de facto segregated areas. There are white suburbs and white neighborhoods in cities and black neighborhoods in cities. People don't have a chance to get to know each other because they don't live together. Their kids don't go to school together. There's no opportunity or very few opportunities to have somebody from the other race uh, come over with your kids and spend the night where you can really get to know that people are people. The deep-seated institutional racism in America's policies have got to be dismantled for us to get to the place where the boogeyman can be counteracted. So we all know that there's the, the in-your-face racism, right? The slurs, the emasculation or discounting of someone. But then there, of course, there's the more systemic racism, like what you're talking about. And with it being housing segregation or economic disparities, that kind of thing. And you're learning about your white family. And, and as you've gotten to know them over the past several years, have there been things that you've discovered and I guess how their experience compares to the history of your Black family. You know, it's very interesting because after I met my white family and got to know them, I decided I needed to look into their background the same way I had my dad's. I'd already built a genealogy chart on my father's side that had a number of generations back to the African who arrived on a slave ship in Virginia. But I didn't know beyond, and neither did my white family know beyond their immediate generation, much of their history. So as I checked it out, I was able to go back several generations in my mom's family. And the lesson that I learned after I drew that genealogy chart and compared it to my Black family's genealogy was the opportunity disparity between the white and Black sides. My white great-great-grandfather was a banker. He was a prominent businessman in Ohio when our ancestors were slaves. My mother's mother's side was a people who came immigrated here from the from Great Britain. They were tradesmen, craftsmen. They came here for a better life and built the opportunity to grow their trade and own their own business. While my great grandmother was a sharecropper on the same plantation where our ancestors were slaves. And there, at the age of 14 or 15, she was repeatedly raped by the white man who ran that farm. And so my, my grandmother turned out to be half white, something I discovered much later. So my grandmother was actually half white, something that had never been spoken of. I discovered this during all of my family research as well. And as a mixed race person, she lived wholly in the black community because of the one drop rule 
And when I discovered that she was the issue of a rape, I asked her, did you know your white father? And she said, oh, yeah. Where we lived down in Smithville, Georgia, he would show up where I lived every once in a while with a little bag of candy and sit me on his knee. But the minute he crossed that porch, we all knew we were never to acknowledge him in public. So he was never my father, and he meant nothing to me. So if you look at the generations of wealth-building opportunities on the white side of my family versus the denial of economic opportunity on my black side, it illustrates where we are today as that accumulation over generations and generations and hundreds of years of slavery's accumulation of disparity, it shows up in the Boston Globe series on race that ran a couple of years ago, which showed that the average net worth of a black Boston family is only $8. Whereas the average net worth of a Boston white family is over $240,000. Right, right. And so lastly, Dolores, thinking of what you just said there and really thinking about the full scope of this, but also understanding where we are today and understanding how both sides of your family fit into that. I mean, what is your hope for how, how we emerge from the moment that we're currently in? I think today we are in a moment of opportunity because so many white allies have stepped forward and asked, how can we help? When I lived through the civil rights era, there were some clergy, white clergy who asked that question, but there weren't, there wasn't a widespread sentiment in the white populace to get involved more seriously. The moment that we have right now seems to be dominated by people trying to understand what is the black experience. And so I hope that Say I'm Dead, my book will give them some insights into that. There's a lot of good reading out there. And I think book sales show that the public is hungry for that knowledge. However, what we have to understand is that awareness is not action. And action is what changes things. And so on many levels, people can step up their game. And I hope that this is the chance for us to really see that happen, where people will make those personal connections that I talked about. Find a a Black professional and craftsman to help you with your taxes and your plumbing and reach out to find some children that you can tutor and foster relationships across the line, but also get busy backing legislation for changes in police behavior. Welcome those people who move into your neighborhood that haven't been seen much there in the past. Get to know them. Work for elections for what you believe. Make sure in your workplace the hiring is equitable and at the highest possible level welcoming to minorities. Make sure that the schools are teaching the true American history about slavery and Jim Crow and not passing over it as it has been done for many years in American history books. There's so many things, so much action that can be done. And the more people who get to work to help make that change, the better. Well, you said nothing but a word, Dolores. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Paris. Well, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate your time and appreciate you you dropping those gems for us. It's been my pleasure. That's E. Dolores Johnson, author of Say I'm Dead, a family memoir of race, secrets, and love. Dolores, thank you so much. Thank you, Paris. Isaac J. Bailey, the author of My Brother Moochie and Why Didn't We Riot, A Black Man in Trump Land. Thanks so much for being with me. Yes, thank you very much for having me. 
So Isaac, both of these books are really spot on for our current moment. And I assume when you wrote them, you didn't know that they would be. <laughs> um, but but it's kind of like at the same time, these are topics that really can resonate with us at any moment. Of course, with my brother Moochie, that book is about dignity and then how we think about the dignity of Black people, especially as they face the criminal justice system, as they face systemic racism and poverty. Right. And then the book, Why Didn't We Write It?, as in your title says, is about being a Black man in the era of Trump. And of course, that's still relevant. Tell me how you're thinking about how these books are placed and what we're going through right now. It's a bit sobering because These kinds of themes have been with us for a very long time, like unfortunately, and it has been frustrating for me and also a bit encouraging for me during a time like this, because right now there are so many people finally paying attention. My fear is that it is going to be short-lived and that we will stop before we've actually fully reckoned. One thing that comes to mind is the political moment, right? You know, we're on the cusp of a very important election. There's a lot at stake in this election, and there's a lot of rhetoric that really is the backdrop to everything that's going on with our national reckoning with race and with policing. Your books both serve as some material that can really help us understand not only the moment that we're in and what's led up to this, but how we can work to correct this going forward. But do you think that you're reaching the right people who really need, I mean, everyone needs to hear the messages that are conveyed, but do you think that the people, you know, who really need to hear it are hearing it? Frankly, like, I'm not sure yet. It is really hard to know during the moment whether or not these messages really are getting through, or is this just a um, short-term sort of sugar high for like folks to like talk about injustice, et cetera? Are they really, really like in it for the long haul? It actually takes a long time and real sort of sacrifice on an emotional level, taking sort of uh, like concrete steps. And so like for me, I am not going to be convinced that all of the folks like who actually really need to be reached have been reached until we are actually on the other side of this. And then it is like actually really, really difficult to figure out when exactly that will be. Right. You know, I think some people, if you, you know, rewind to several years ago, some people think, oh, well, maybe President Obama is going to be when we reach that other side. And that wasn't. Yes. I thought about kind of this thought in Why Didn't We Riot, where you talk about the comfort level of police is more important than Black life, right? Right. Um, I mean, how are you thinking about that right now, where people have really been talking about, you know, like we need to really start to value Black life, especially as it is, as it lines up against policing and, and how we can really start to involve that in the way that we think about public safety and policing in this country. But how do we have to start to think about how we account for the well-being of Black life in that institution? That is one of the really, really hard questions, which I've actually been grappling with, like in both those books. It is not about being against the police or hating police. And in fact, most Black people know that they can be a positive and sort of a necessary force. That part is absolutely welcomed and wanted by every single Black person that I know. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that. But what we have been forced to endure in order to get that good part is this message that it is okay for the cops to actually sometimes beat us or shoot us or sort of uh, spit in our faces and also to like not be held to account. That is where tension lies. We are forced to like actually take that uh, like really, really bad stuff with cops in order to get the really, really good stuff with cops. And yet we are essentially saying no more of that. 
They say that cops are heroes, right? If they get scared, they can shoot us. Mm -hmm. Those two things like really don't match. Shooting and beating, et cetera, have to really be the last resort, the most frustrating part of this whole discussion is the inability for many people to like actually hear when we say that we welcome policing. We absolutely welcome that and want that, but we don't want to have to pay for that with our lives and with our dignity. You mentioned dignity, and there's also this thought about respectability politics that comes up. The realization that many Black people have about having to be so near perfect and work so hard to not be too much, too brash, too whatever, right? Especially in the face of someone like law enforcement or even spaces that are majority and predominantly white, right? Because we are not afforded that same leniency or that even that same assumption of goodness. And I actually want to read a bit from my brother Muchi to kind of talk a little bit about this point. I'm going to read from the chapter Trapped, where you're talking about a friend of yours named Damon, who was killed in an altercation with police in which a police officer was also killed. Only looking back did I realize I was drawn to Damon because he was Muchi in every way that mattered. Maybe that's why I cried, because I had spent my entire time in college denying the existence of my hero older brother. Even when I played basketball with inmates at a prison for young men near Charlotte as part of my work with Davidson's branch of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he showed up in the form of Damon anyway. Those who eulogized Damon remembered his active involvement in the church, which he had attended the Sunday before his death. They remembered his athleticism at North Mecklenburg High School, where he played football and basketball. And they remembered his work at Davidson College, where he was a service worker and participated in its love of learning enrichment program for young people. Damon was a fun-loving person who was warm-hearted and loved helping others. He had a special way of speaking with the elderly who adored him, read the funeral program. But some speakers, including his cousin and uncle, warned against the troubles that had plagued Kearns. They urged the congregation to rise above the problems of drug and violence. When you get in those tough situations, I want you to think about Damon, said his cousin, Kevin Whitley. You can do and be whatever you want to be, but it's up to you. So Isaac, I chose that passage because I think it is very poignant. We've had the president say things like likening a police officer who does a bad shoot to someone missing a bad shot on a golf course and just choking, you know, and saying, oh, well, people choke sometimes. Or the president and others defending the actions of 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse who drove into a protest to intentionally kill people in Wisconsin. It just makes me think about how Blackness and the dignity of Blackness is pulled apart so much, but that does not happen on the other side when we talk about whiteness and especially when we talk about police or people who have done harm to Black people, like Kyle Rittenhouse or like Dylan Roof, who you also talk about. One of the hardest things about being Black in this country is that we are not afforded the right or the privilege of being human. And that means that we don't have the right to be imperfect. If we are imperfect, Mm. it is okay for others to beat us, to shoot us, and also to think that we are undeserving of help or grace. And it is one of the most frustrating things about this existence, especially when I think about the comparison to, mm-hmm. say, so Trayvon Martin, who was killed in 2012. Mm-hmm. His sin was like walking home from the store while black. Like that is all that he was doing. He was just trying to walk home. He wasn't robbing. He wasn't raping. He wasn't doing anything menacing. He was just trying to walk home from the store. Mm -hmm. And yet some guy spotted him and then like assumed that like he was up to no good 
I imagine simply because of the color of his skin. Mm. Millions upon millions of white Americans, including like many white Christians that I know, actually sided with the killer. And then like now that I'm a 17-year-old white dude armed himself with an AR-15 and mm-hmm. walked into unrest. And he was like actually greeted warmly by white cops. Mm-hmm. Right. And he eventually shot three people. And yet those white Christians that I know, like in my area, who I have prayed with mm-hmm. and cried with and like actually helped their kids and they helped mine, those same folks who blamed Trayvon Martin for his own death are celebrating like this 17-year-old white kid. Mm-hmm. And so like for me, that illustrates like how deep are these roots of racism, which has devalued even the idea of Black life. That hurts like hell. Mm. And you also talk about having to grapple with your own feelings of imposing those thoughts about respectability politics on yourself. And I mean, what is it for you to grapple with and really undo that, especially in regards to your brother, Muchi? Yes. It took me like a really, really, really long time to realize that what I had started to do, actually sympathize and uh, empathize more with white people than my own family and other black people. For like a while, it even was like a bit of pride even. I was so open to like actually reaching across the divide right? Like in order to actually bring people together, et cetera. And yet what I was actually doing was like essentially adopting those views of those white Christians, which meant that like I had actually become an extension of them. Mm -hmm. It actually took like a really, really, really long time, like in order to realize that those dueling kinds of uh, shames that I have on one hand, I saw, like, actually have this shame being a member of a uh, like black family and so I like, actually love people like who have done really bad things. Mm-hmm. And yet, on like the other hand, I also have the shame now that it actually took me so long in order to realize that I had been viewing them like in a way that many white people that I know like actually view Trayvon Martin or even Jacob Blake, they sort of actually believe that these folks are actually brought on their own shootings and murder. It is something I'm actually trying to be really, really honest with myself about, but also with the public at large, just to like actually give people space and also reason like in order to like actually really examine their own hearts and heads as well. Mm, definitely, definitely. It's a good thing for us to think about as we move forward and really try to think about how we can make this situation better. That was Isaac J. Bailey, author of My Brother Mucci and Why Didn't We Riot? A Black Man in Trumpland. Isaac, thank you so much for being with us. Yes, I thank you very much too for having me. Debbie Porter here. Thanks for joining us at the Boston Book Festival, where we celebrate the power of words year-round. Sign up for our newsletter at bostonbookfest.org, and we'll keep you posted.